Welcome to episode 13 of the Go Get Em Agility podcast. My name is Margaret Hughes and I'm your host. I don't know if you all noticed, but I lost my co-host Emma. And as much as Emma loved talking about agility and we had some great conversations about lots of different subjects, Emma decided she doesn't really want to have her voice to be broadcast across the United States. So Emma has decided to not continue with the podcast, and I hope that you will continue to join me as I do these podcasts solo. Hopefully, I can convince Emma to join me in this podcast once again, and I'm sure she'll do a guest appearance every once in a while. So thank you, Emma, if you're listening, for doing the podcast with me. I really enjoyed doing them with you. I'd like to talk to you today about why I love the sport of agility, what I find fascinating about it, what I find difficult about it, and what attracted me to agility in the first place. So let's go back to 1996, 1997. I was working at the Marin Humane Society in California I had adopted a couple of dogs from the Humane Society and one of the benefits of working at the Humane Society was that they allowed the employees to take free obedience classes with their dogs. I enrolled my dogs in every single obedience class that the Humane Society offered. I also, at the same time, they offered a lunchtime obedience class for the dogs that were in the Humane Society, the dogs that were up for adoption. And so once a week or twice a week, I can't remember how many times now, I would take one of the Humane Society adoption dogs and I would go and do obedience classes with a a dog to, to help them become more adoptable. So not only was I taking obedience classes with my own dogs, I was also taking obedience classes with an adoption dog. Along with the obedience classes that we were allowed to take, they the Humane Society also allowed us to attend any seminar that came through the Humane Society doors. So the particular Humane Society that I worked at had a fabulous auditorium. And there was a company out there called Puppy Works. And Puppy Works would host seminars of all different dog trainers, all different behaviorists um, from across the nation, from across the United States. But they also brought obedience trainers and behaviorists from around the world. So um, mostly Europe. So every couple of months, the Humane Society through Puppy Works hosted seminars taught by uh, Ian Dunbar, Sue Sternberg, Jean Donaldson, Leslie Nelson, Sheila Booth, John Rogerson. The list goes on and on. And I was allowed to attend as many of these seminars as I wanted to. The Humane Society considered it a continuing education. And so they allowed their employees to go to as many seminars as Um, they wanted. So over a five-year period, I was introduced to a a host of different dog trainers and behaviorists. 
And as my interest in dog training and obedience training grew, I became aware of Jean Donaldson's Academy for Dog Trainers at the San Francisco Humane Society, just about 45 minutes south from me. And so I attended Jean Donaldson's Academy for Dog Trainers. I attended not only the pilot program, but then um, I attended their second session that they offered to the public. So my dog training career started at the Humane Society. Uh, Trish King was the head of the, the dog training department at the time. And I teamed up with her assistant dog trainer, Mandy Kennedy, who was an incredible dog trainer. And she helped to mentor me um, through dog training, through the beginning, my beginning years of dog training. About the same time that I was going to all the seminars and working at the Humane Society, my husband and I went to visit my husband's family who lived in England. And while we were there, I asked his family if we could go see an obedience competition. Um, at that time, I was into competitive obedience with my Pomeranian. And so I was looking for an obedience trial, but there weren't any. But there was an agility trial on the only weekend that we had available. So I convinced my husband's family to take me to this agility trial. And while I didn't really know what agility was, I did know that it involved dogs and I knew that it involved jumping. I did manage to convince my husband's family to take me to this agility trial and we walked into this big arena and there were probably 25 to 30 border collies all tied up on the side of the wall barking their heads off while their owners were walking the course. And I remember just being, wow, it was really loud. Uh, the dogs were highly aroused and nobody seemed to care. After they walked their course, they started running their, their dogs and I was just amazed and fascinated with the skill and the athleticism of these dogs that were running at this trial. They also had another agility ring that was running outside on the grass. And I remember there being no fences and the dogs were just connected with their handlers running with people walking around and other dogs walking around. And the dog on course was focused and p working so incredibly beautifully with their handler. And then the last part of, of this agility trial that we were at in England, this was my very first experience with agility. Um, I, we went into another uh, arena and there was a small poodle like a toy poodle, a teacup poodle, one, a tiny one. And he was jumping, he or she was jumping either 12 or 14 inches. And I was just amazed that this little dog was getting over these hurdles. And so when I came back to the United States, I, I wanted to find out more. I wanted to figure out what agility was about and whether or not it was something that I could um, get into with my own dogs. So soon after that, sometime in the, the next um, few months after that, the Humane Society brought another seminar to where I worked. 
and they brought in local competitors, Nancy Guys and Jim Basic. And both Nancy and Jim, they were trying to bring more agility to the Bay Area at the time. So the Marin Humane Society hosted them to come in and give a seminar on agility. So as we're at this seminar, we're in a pavilion, maybe 80 feet by 60 foot pavilion. And on the far side of this pavilion was a tunnel. And on the other side of the pavilion, uh, Jim and Nancy were talking to all the seminar uh, uh, participants. And Jim turns around to his dog and he sends his dog to the tunnel from across the pavilion. And the dog took off like a rocket, swooped through the tunnel and immediately came back to him. And I was stunned. I was just astonished at the the ability that the training that this dog had to take off and go to a tunnel, you know, 60 to 70 feet away from his handler and then immediately come back to him. It was fantastic. From that point forward, I was hooked. I was ready for more. And there was one other person that was attending the seminar with me and she and I started talking about agility and how could we get it to um, be at the Humane Society? Could we start classes at the Humane Society? And at the time I was still working at the Humane Society and so I wasn't an instructor. I didn't have the qualifications to be an instructor. And this woman that was with me, she knew a little bit more than I did, but not much. And she started the agility program at the Humane Society. And so of course I joined her first class. And so that was my first introduction to agility um, was first in England. And then shortly thereafter, Nancy Guys and Jim Basic um, and the seminar that they came and presented at the Humane Society. I was hooked, I was hooked from the, the moment that I watched Agility Live. It was brilliant. I look back now and I think, what was it that got me hooked? What was it that got my attention and caused me to wanna pursue agility with the dogs that, that I owned at the time? And I had a Pomeranian and a Shih Tzu that I had adopted from the Humane Society and they're not well known for their agility skills, but they worked with me the very best that they possibly could for a new handler. And we learned agility together. I think what hooked me at the time was the connection and the training process that of getting these animals, these dogs to work a course with their handlers, to navigate 12 weave poles to handle a moving seesaw to run over a 12 inch wide 36 foot long dog walk i thought it was phenomenal i wanted that connection with my own dogs and so i started training and competing with my shih tzu and I think his very first show is either 1997 or 1998. I had not been doing agility that long. And I remember going to my very first agility show down in Santa Barbara. It was at a fairgrounds. 
And I remember walking the course for the very first time at a trial and realizing that they had curved tunnels in competition. Now, my dog had never seen a curved tunnel. I didn't even know that they curved them. That's how little I knew about agility. Uh, and so I had to help him. I don't think I qualified on my very first trial, but I, I loved it. Even though I didn't qualify, I loved it. And I was ready to continue and, and keep training my dog and continue on. And what I found fascinating and wonderful about agility back in the late 90s is what I still find fascinating and wonderful about agility today. And I still have the same butterflies. I still have the same love for agility, probably more now that I'm an instructor. I think that agility also taps into a part of my brain that I enjoy the figuring out of the strategy of agility. I'm figuring out how the dog is going to take an obstacle, um, the speed that they have, the, the trajectory that they're going to put their bodies over these hurdles and where they take off and where they land and that, that parabola. So like the St. Louis arch. Uh, so dogs will take off and they'll arc up and over these hurdles in, in a mathematical way that that arc that they produce when they jump to me, I love the ability to possibly change that arc to see that arc and to work within the dog's natural ability to jump. And can I manipulate it through training? Because I love training. I love to see the different things that dogs can learn and then put that into practice in sequencing, in, uh, in trialing. Today, when I, when I'm watching some of my students, I, I see mathematical uh, uh, equations. I'm not a math whiz by any stretch of the imagination, but I remember back in, in school doing uh, quadratic equations on and graphing them on a calculator and that parabola, those arcs that, um, that would, we would create. And that's what I see when I watch dogs jump and when they lift, how that, that angle that they take follows through the entire jump. And so I find that kind of stuff fascinating and even more fascinating, the pressure or the lack of pressure that their handlers put on them and what that does to the dog's line. Through training, we can bend the dog's line. We can help them either push away from us or pull into us, converge in on us. And, and the lines that the dogs create going from obstacle to obstacle and the amount of training that can change those lines and also the pressure, the physical pressure or the lack of pressure that we put on our dogs, how that affects dogs' lines, how the, the flow that a judge will put a course into what that causes a dog to do with the natural behaviors of the dog and the lines and the, the forward motion 
or the lack of motion, what that causes the dog to do mathematically, the lines that the dog creates or is, is about to create, um, that's what I physically see when I'm watching dogs run. So when I'm looking at a course, whether it be on paper or in person, while I'm walking it, I visually see, I visually paint the lines that my dog is, that I predict my dog is going to take. I visually see painted lines on the ground of where I want to be in relation to the obstacles, where I want to be in relation to my dog, and the lines are painted on the ground. And I'm putting the lines where I believe my dog is going to run and where they're going to lift for a jump, where they're going to land, how fast they're going to be moving through a given sequence. When my dog is running, and I'm running at the same time, I've learned to visually process the lines that my dog is, is creating as they're moving and, and predict what they're about to do in the upcoming obstacles. And, and this is something that I've learned over the years and I visually can see my dogs taking a jump and I can predict where they're going to land depending on where they took off from. And, and that's, that's one of our jobs as handlers is to learn to predict our dog's takeoff and, our, and their landing so that we can then help steer them in the correct direction that we, we want. And so this, this mathematical equation of, of where a dog takes off from and the arc that they create, it's predictable. It's predictable, and, and unless we intervene and change it, it will remain um, in, in a certain arc that the dog naturally takes. Um, and, and once a dog takes off from an obstacle, it is a rare dog that can contort their body mid-air, change direction to uh, move on with the handler without taking a bar down. And so most dogs, once they lift on a jump, they are going to finish out the parabola arc that they've created um, before as they land and then they can follow on with their handlers. After a dog's taken off, most dogs, the, the location that they take off from dictates where they land. And so if the dog is taking off in extension, and moving to the right when they when they lift for the jump, they will land an extension moving to the right um, when they land. We have to learn to see this and predict this while we're running and, and see it and predict it as the dog approaches the obstacle. And so our ability to be able to predict this, our, our, our ability to read dogs and uh, predict their takeoff and their landing and their jumping arc. I, I love it. 
I, I, I love it. I love watching it. I love seeing if I'm right. So, you know, watching a dog taking off down a course, seeing how fast they're moving and that energy as it, as it pulls up and over a jump, you can see where they're going to land and how that's going to affect their run out towards the next obstacle and whether or not they're in line or did they overshoot an obstacle? Did they undercut an obstacle? And how does the handler in the middle of a course compensate for their dog's landing and takeoff styles? Beautiful to watch. A handler that can read their dog and can make it, um, the timing of it look easy I just, I, I think it's beautiful. A few weeks ago, I was listening to Kale McCann of McCann Dog Training, who's up in Canada, and she brought up a fun experiment that she had done with her dogs where she put tape on the ground where she predicted her dog would take off and then put tape on the ground where she predicted her dog would land. And then she, so she put the tape down without, so she walked the course, put the tape down without walk, running her dog. And then she videoed running her dog with this tape on the ground. And if I remember correctly, she was pretty dang close, if not spot on about predicting where her dog would take off and land. Uh, on, a, on a given course. I need to do this experiment with my own dog. I, the ability to see the location that your dog is gonna take off and see the location that your dog is gonna land, it's a benefit. It's a benefit to running these courses and that part of the mathematical equation of the arcs that, that dogs give us when we push them or when the handler's pushing on the line um, or pulling on their line and asking them to converge into us, uh, it's, it's predictable. And I want to know how close am I? So I, I need to do that experiment. And I think that it would benefit everybody to do an experiment like that. Can you predict where your dog takes off and where your dog lands on a given course? And so if we are able to predict where our dog takes off and where our dog lands, we also need to be able to recognize when they're not in line to grab that prediction, when they're not in, in a good position to go out and get a jump or when they're too fast for a jump and they're going to overshoot it or when they're too slow or too um, uh, bendy on a jump and they're going to cut in too close for the next obstacle. That's one of the reasons that we need to learn how to predict our dogs is to help compensate for the next obstacle down the line before it's too late, before they are in a position where we can't um, fix whatever, whatever line that they're on that we need. So how do you become good at predicting? How do you become good at figuring out what your dog's line is. In my opinion, I think it's beneficial, especially as a, as an instructor, I think it's beneficial as a student as well, but definitely it's beneficial as an instructor is to watch the open level dogs, the mid level dogs. So advanced dogs, uh, open dogs, the level two or three dogs, these are dogs that have been through novice, have been through starters, 
and they're now in the open level, the mid-range level of agility. And the reason why these dogs are good to watch and why the handlers are good to watch is because the dogs have enough skills, enough training under their belt that they know the obstacles. They've gotten through the novice rounds, so they're they're able to qualify. And so they have enough skills going on, but they don't have enough skills to save their handler's poor handling. <laughs> so it comes down to the handler, right? Once again, handlers, whatever cues they give their dogs is the, the dogs are honest. They're honest on what they know, on what they're able to do and, and handle in a given course. And so these open level dogs, and I'm talking about dogs that are in focus. So these are dogs that are running well with their handlers and it comes down to um, the skill set that what what the dog understands for the level of of open and the handler's timing the handler's skills of being able to give their dogs the most information um, as soon as possible and so you can see in the open class when things start to go um, astray is it's such an honest view of pure dog training the dogs don't know enough to save the handlers, but they know enough to stay in the game and to show the handlers what they do or do not know. Now, dogs that are wildly obstacle focused, sometimes it doesn't matter what the handler does. The dog has too much obstacle focus and the handler needs to work on obstacle focus. I'm talking about the dogs that have this nice magical point between obstacle and handler focus and everything that they do how wide they go on a jump how early they turn on a jump is in direct relation to what the handler is doing and the what the handler has cued the dog to do the distance that they are from their handler it, it's predictable uh, the turning arcs that they have it's predictable and I love it. I find this stuff fascinating. And so to this day, some 20 something years later, I still find this part of agility addicting. I think it's what a lot of people find addicting about agility is, is the ability to get the course right, the magical balance between handler and obstacle focus the communication that we have to have with our dogs to get a certain turn or to be able to send our dogs out a certain distance. And I think it's addicting that we can train these dogs to understand how to stay in obstacle focus and ignore whatever we're doing behind them or in front of them, or we can cross in front of them. We can move laterally away from them. We can converge on them and they can stay in obstacle focus and ignore what we're doing. It's a magical transition of training and it takes training to be able to do some of this. Not all of it comes naturally to our dogs. We must train our dogs 
for agility. I love watching handlers. I love, I, there's a joy that I get from watching my new students transition from a, a newbie, somebody struggling with remembering what a front cross is, remembering what a rear cross looks like, and to them turning into an actual agility handler. The hair on the back of my neck stands up watching these new handlers struggle and struggle and then get it. The light bulb goes on. The light bulb goes on for them. The light bulb goes on for the dog. And all of a sudden we have an agility team that is able to navigate either a small sequence or a much longer sequence. I think it's beautiful. I think it's magical. And that is what I find addicting about agility. I do think it's important to remember that as much as we train and, and these these dogs can run these incredible courses or even just a simple course, I think it's incredible. I think it's important to remember that once you train it, it doesn't always stay in place. There's always retraining to do. Dogs forget, humans forget. We get out of line with a certain sequence and the whole thing falls apart like a, a big domino explosion. But I think the willingness to keep trying, the willingness to get back out there and, and keep training the dogs for different scenarios. I just absolutely love, I love the ability for handlers and dogs to make agility look smooth and effortless. I think it's what attracts so many people to the sport. It really is an amazing sport to learn to accomplish and, and run these incredible dogs. And congratulations to all those teams out there that can navigate a 10 to 20 piece course. If you're early on in your agility career, hang in there because the training will kick in eventually. And it's a blast. I absolutely love going and have fun with your dogs. Look at the arc, look at the mathematical equations that I believe lay on the floor of the agility course. Enjoy the process of learning, learning how to navigate your dog's line, how to push them, how to pull them, how to get them to change sides for you. Enjoy the process of agility training. Go have fun with your dog. It's work, it's effort, there's training involved. Dogs don't always cooperate, but in the end, this game, it's all about the dog cookies. It's not about the ribbons. As long as your dog is having a good time coming off the course, I'd keep going out there and doing it. Have fun. Go get them. Woof, woof. <laughs>